Well, this morning, I want to begin by asking you, how do you live life? Are you a risk taker or are you more cautious? And in fact, even people could describe you as risk averse. You're just going to avoid anything that would create problems in your life. On vacation, do you go for all the activity that you can cram into a week? Or do you um, just want to sit on the beach and soak up the sun? Allison and I went to Aruba on our honeymoon, and I was thinking, wow, what a week of, you know, sitting on the beach and just in the, under those huts and stuff like that. And instead, we were riding Jeeps all over some of the most ridiculous terrain God has ever made, you know, and, and just going all the time. We were, we, we're, we're nature different. Now, I go like that during the week. I generally start wearing down about 10 o'clock at night. Allison wears down when she lies on the bed. That's when she, whenever that happens to be, you know, whether it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon or, or 11.30 at night. But, but, but are you the kind of person who's just all in for life? You're going to do anything. You're going to cram everything that you can. Are you the kind at work that, that's, that's full of ideas to share with the boss? Or do you just want to fly under the radar and, and not make any waves not rock the boat. I'm going to imagine that some of you once were one way and now you're another. Perhaps you were risk taker earlier in life, but you've fallen off the ledge a time or two, or you've been so badly burned for your efforts that you just want to settle in and, and not make any noise, not be noticeable. If you prefer to move quietly through this earth, whether that's always been your MO or whether it's lately been your MO, then I can understand that our study in Acts could be quite discomforting. Um, the Apostle Paul was anything but cautious in his approach to life. I mean, we followed him from the Middle East up through modern-day Turkey, over into Europe, and every step of the way he's had troubles. He's been persecuted, shouted down, beaten, stoned, left for dead, thrown in prison. All because of his commitment. To say to the world what we just sang about. Jesus is Lord. And we proclaim him that. Now Paul has picked up a few companions along the way for his second missionary journey. We're in Acts 17 today. Silas, Timothy, Luke to be exact. And, and, and if you think that Paul's boldness was a personality thing. You know like well some people are just natured that way. I'm, I'm just too timid. Well, there's in, in evidence that one of Paul's companions, Timothy, was an enormously timid kind of a guy. I mean, in fact, fearful, very fearful about ministry, and yet here he was living life on the edge right alongside of Paul. Well, if the title of today's message looks familiar to you, it should. It's the last portion of our purpose statement, exalting the Lord Establishing believers and engaging the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This mission that we have as a church is as old as Jesus telling his disciples just before he went back to heaven. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all people. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And Paul is a great example for us of living out that full mission of the Lord in obedience to Jesus. You will recall that last week's chapter, chapter 16, 
uh, found Paul and Silas badly beaten and imprisoned because of their commitment, once again, to share the gospel. They were released and they left Philippi, headed for Thessalonica, which was a very important city in the, in the, in the Roman Empire. It was the capital, uh, the province, capital of the province of Macedonia. A lot of people came in and out of Thessalonica, and Paul strategically went there, marking it for the kingdom of God, led by the Holy Spirit. The first half of Acts 17 records Paul's experiences in Thessalonica and Berea, which pretty much follow the same pattern that we've seen all along. They go into the synagogue, they preach to Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. God-fearing Gentiles come to the Christ in fairly large numbers. The Jews get jealous. They go to the Gentiles into the, into the city. Jews stir up trouble Something bad happens and they get out of town. A lot of times by dark of night or, or thrown out of town. And they, and they move on to the next city. But a, but a church is established in those towns. And the gospel takes root. And, 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 and the word of the Lord begins to move. Now, a lot of this starts in the synagogues. And I just want to say a, a word about um, our church here at Grace. Uh, because of... Uh, spring break, last Sunday, this Sunday, and today springing forward. Our numbers have been small both weeks. A lot of people that are not here that normally are typically here. We're going back to one service in, in, on, on uh, Palm Sunday, but between now and then, we've got an opportunity to fill up a lot of seats, and, and, and even when we go back to one service, we're going to be full, much fuller, but probably not totally full when the students leave. Our student numbers have been dropping, and I'm challenging everybody to start bringing friends and neighbors and, and, and acquaintances to church where the gospel is being preached. When I was going through, when I first got here, I was going through the gospel of John, and I, I went back and counted the number of messages, 20 or 57, 57 messages through the gospel of John. But every single week there was the call to believe in Jesus as the Christ. Every week that we're going through the gospel or the book of Acts, and we're not going to take nearly that many, about half that many, and we're going to spend in, in the book of Acts. But, but every week the gospel message is going forth and, and the call to believe is there. And we need to be bringing people into this place. It's the first time, this last year or so, it's the first time in all the years, in, in the last 14 or so, that, that our student numbers are dropping. Sean and David assure me that it's not that they're going somewhere else. They just are not coming to church. These things go in cycles. And I've always expected that. But our numbers so far with the students have been going like this, and all of a sudden they've dropped off. Students, encourage your friends to get in here, to get here under the sound of the gospel. And you've got to, you know, be a little more creative than that. Say, hey, you need to go hear the gospel at church on Sunday. But all of us need to be inviting people because this is where the gospel is being preached. I'm not up here every Sunday, so I can say that a good, a good word is being given from this place. And it is a good word because it's from here. We're not making stuff up. It's not philosophies of men as we'll be thinking about today. But it's the word of God going forward. In the first century, Paul would go into the synagogue and the numbers would swell. And a lot of people came to Christ, and the church would be established, and he would move on. Well, so that's our challenge, to, to, to begin to work at filling this place up again. The second half of Acts 17 gives us a great model 
for engaging those who know nothing of a Christian worldview as Paul engages in this chapter the philosophers at Mars Hill. Um, so here's the way we're going to look at our text. There are a few truths that are already on the screen that we're going to think about in a little bit more in depth just now before we read the first 15 verses of Acts 17. And after we do that, and after we read the text and after prayer, we'll, we'll settle in and examine Paul's witness to the pagan philosophers in Athens found in the second portion of this, of this chapter. But let's think a little more about those first 15 verses. In, in addition to the pattern that Paul had of going into the synagogues, preaching and then moving out to the city, there was method in his madness. And some people would think you've got to be mad to keep continue preaching the gospel after all that's happened to you. But Paul had a method of sharing the gospel, not only a pattern that he followed in the places that he went, but as he shared, he would first reason with the listeners from the Scriptures. The Greek word translated reason is the root for our English word dialogue. In other words, there was a good deal of give and take. We think about Paul in most of these places just going, and he stands up and he preaches the word. But, the, but there's a sense that, that, that there's a great deal of give and take going on, dialogue back and forth. People are asking questions. He's probably asking them questions in a Socratic method that he's going to uh, employ here with these leaders um, in, in just a little bit. But, but there's reasoning going on from the Scriptures. He's, he's helping them to make sense. Um, and, and then Paul would carefully explain the gospel so that they understood it. And last, he would prove that Jesus was the Messiah by putting Old Testament Scriptures like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 alongside of the recent events in Jerusalem where Jesus had been crucified and buried and resurrected. And he would point to witnesses of the resurrection, of whom he was one. He would say, look, if you, you don't believe my vision on the road to Damascus, i got 500 people I can tell you who saw Jesus crucified, and they saw him in his resurrected state. And they saw him in all kinds of different circumstances. And he told us about this Scripture that had pointed to him, and it's clear to us, and we want to share this with you so that you can know how to be saved. Well, we're going to see all of this in Thessalonica. And in Berea, we're going to encounter a large number of Jews who accept Christ, not simply by accepting what Paul said, by, but by examining the things that he told them and, and, and comparing it with Scripture to see, is this true? This was unusual. Most of the time, remember, he'd go, a few Jews, but a lot of God-fearing Gentiles would get saved. Those people who had become members of Judaism or had joined the nation of Israel in their beliefs, their religious beliefs with Judaism, but their hearts were already prepared for the gospel message. Then the Jews would get jealous because so many Gentiles were flocking to Paul, and they'd say, well, surely he can't be speaking truth because they're, they're, they're going straight to Jesus and bypassing Judaism now, the ones who are outside of the synagogue. They come to hear the message, but then they get saved and have nothing to do with us. So they would stir up the trouble. But in, in Berea, that didn't happen. These were Jews, a lot of Jews, who examined carefully what Paul said, and they said, you're right. The Holy Spirit had prepared their hearts. And these laymen, they were not theologians. These laymen 
were praised for examining what the theologian said. And not just any theologian. The Apostle Paul, for goodness sakes. Go thou and do likewise. Don't take what you hear up here on Sunday morning just at face value. Look the Scriptures over. Examine them and see if the things that are being stated are true. I mean, Mike Moneypenny's up here every now and again, so we, you certainly need to be examining what he says. But you examine what I say, what anybody says. They're commended for that. So, let's stand, if you would. We're going to stand together and read these first 15 verses. And then after prayer, we'll look at the rest of the chapter a little more deliberately. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, I'm stopping in the middle of a sentence, but I I do want to say this. This is one of the great values of going through the book of Acts. As As we look at these places where Paul is, if you will go... Sometime this week, even today if you, if you have the time, after Carolina Beach Duke would be a great time to go and, and read the books of First and Second Thessalonians. And, you'll, and, it, and they will begin to make more sense because he'll talk about when I was with you and you'll see that he was there for more than three weeks. It's not that he was just there for three weeks, but there was a three-week period where a lot of this took place. There was probably a lot of preparation. There was a lot of follow-up, but... But during that three weeks, um, and we don't know how long it was, probably fairly soon after that the Jews caused trouble. So most of his time there was before that. But these three weeks, he got, he got to speak at the synagogue. And, and, and he reasoned with them, verse 2, from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, where they were staying, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. Because Rome, if Rome heard about this uproar, they wouldn't like it. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. 
But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up crowds, up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So as we go to prayer, we find Paul in Athens. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, your word is so rich. And when we just slow down long enough to look at it just a little more deeply than we typically do, we, we find treasures there. And Lord, we pray as we consider today Paul's ministry, both with religiously minded people and then with pagans who were religious somewhat in nature, but, but in a far different way than those who worshipped at synagogues and and, and, and invoke the name of Yahweh, of, of Jehovah God. And as we look at this today, I pray that you would just, first of all, just, just em, embolden us, em, just fill us with a passion, a fire, Lord, in our hearts to share this good news of the gospel, the good news of the good news of Jesus Christ. And give us wisdom as we consider the ways that you led your servants in those early days to do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and be seated. Athens was quite a place. I'm sure there were many senses in which Paul was pretty excited about getting to Athens. Uh, it was a very important city in the world. It was a relatively small city, 10,000 citizens, best I can track down. Uh, Kent Hughes says 10,000 people, um, 10,000 people, 30,000 statues or gods. As best I can track down, there were 10,000 citizens, and I'm sure there were more than that uh, who lived in Athens. But just consider consider that as a small place when you, when you compare it with Antioch of Syria with 500,000 people. We were talking about that place not too long ago, the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Yet, it was important. Scholars from all over the world moved to Athens because it was the intellectual center of the Western world in that day. Much like Oxford was in England in the 19th century, people, scholars from all over the world, they just wanted to gather the great minds together and to think. It was like a think tank without necessarily the same purposes that that think tanks have in our day and time. Although the Romans ruled the world, they loved all things Greek. And there's almost no question that Paul appreciated the beauty of, of the city, and he understood the weight and the magnitude of its importance. But what really affected him was the spiritual condition of the people in that city. Verse 16. Now, when Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul's 
spirit was deeply grieved because of the idolatry all around him. We may not have people bowing down to the statues like they were in Athens. Some, some people said that it was easier to find a God than it was to find a man in Athens. And you can imagine that that's true. And, and, and the splendor, the beauty of these, of these statues, the, uh, the, the, the um, statue of Athena, I believe, I believe is who it was in, in the uh, Acropolis, the Parthenon, up on the, one of the highest points in, in Athens. Her spear... Uh, was quite high, and the glittering gold, would re- the sun would reflect off that glittering gold, and you could see it from 30 miles away. And, and Paul's spirit was grieved as he saw people bowing down. If you've never, have you ever been to a Hindu temple? That would, would be worth your while. They would allow you to go into a Hindu temple up in Raleigh and just watch people. They've got these little gods that are sitting up, little statues, little small statues. And people come in and they bring food and put it down for the god. And they, and they, you know, they, they, they are worshiping and bowing down. You see that in other places of the world when you go, but we don't see it too. We're not confronted with that too often. And even though we don't have that going on all around us, idolatry is no less prevalent in our day than it was in that day. Anything or anybody that takes a place of prominence in our hearts and minds becomes an object of idolatry for us. We are worshiping the wrong thing. I was thinking as as Thomas was singing, you were the sun of my horizon. And I was just saying, is that true, Brad? Is that true of you? That Jesus is the very sun, is your very breath, your life? There's no question that he was for Paul and these guys who were going around. And, and, and as we've talked about time and again, they get the mess beat out of them and they walk away rejoicing. Why? Because their, their hope, all of their hope is in the Lord. We worship money and status and pleasure and athletics and athletes and friends and children and you fill in the blank. There's idolatry all around us and unfortunately too often true in our own lives. The apostle was greatly disturbed and distressed over the foolishness of the people bowing down before these gods and also no doubt the fact that glory was going to them that belonged in one place to Jesus and so you know what he did he went to the synagogue a handful of God-fearing Gentiles accepted Christ and so they made placards and signs and they walked around saying we hate pagans we hate philosophers that's not what he did at all verse 17 So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So here again, same pattern, synagogue, Jews, God-fearing Gentiles, but he also struck up conversations (coughs) with anyone who would interact with him. Paul's ministry took place in the marketplace, discussions that that inevitably uh, uh, um, included a great deal of give and take. 
Athens was the kind of place where you could engage people with philosophical and religious uh, conversations just about anywhere. I mean, it can happen in our country and in much of the world today, in coffee shops and in pubs, places where people gather and people are interested in, in talking about all manner of things. I'm not encouraging you to go to a pub and, you know, engage people, uh, uh, but, but some people do, a lot of people do. Paul engaged them, though, not just with the interesting things of the day. He's not just going to be saying, wow, did you see those pictures of the tsunami in Japan? He's going to be saying, did you see those pictures of the tsunami in Japan? Life is uncertain, isn't it? I mean, those people, somebody's just riding along in the car. What if you didn't even know you're driving along and all of a sudden the ocean you know, half a mile inland is just pushing on you. What then? What happens then? When, when life is over, just like that. He engaged people with the gospel. Now, just a word about these two groups that are mentioned here, Epicureans and Stoics. These two groups represented the extreme ends of the philosophical spectrum, but their extreme views didn't keep them from attracting a large number of followers. People lined up in these two camps primarily, and then there were lots of other different philosophies in Athens, but people generally moved towards one or the other. Epicureans believed that everything happened by chance. Uh, There are gods, but they are so far removed, they could care less about what's going on here. And death is the end, so you may as well live for everything you got today. Then there were, it it sounds like a good recipe for a party, and party they did. Then you've got the Stoics, who were just about the opposite. They didn't believe in parties. I mean, they were absolutely against them. We all know the word Stoic. When you think about Stoic, you think about this. Well, Stoics were really, really sought. Apathy was was the thing that they valued. Just don't be bothered by what happens in the world. Be disciplined. It's your fate. Accept your fate that's been given, that, 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 that is before you. This is your fate, so you just have to live and, and do it without complaining. Don't allow these destructive emotions of anger and happiness to distract you from just living as you're supposed to. Now, those two philosophies may seem ridiculous to you, but most of the intellectual people of that city, smartest in the world, believed in one of those two. And when you think about it, there are traces of those in our day. I mean, there are a lot of people that are party-hardy, you know. And then others, of course, who say, no, no, that's their discipline, but there's no really reason for their discipline. They just, they just say, I don't want to live that kind of a lifestyle. It's not good for you. I'm, they're moral or moral, moralistic even. Um, I, I, if I had been alive in the, in, the, in the first century and if I were without Jesus today, I'm an Epicurean, I'm a lot more than I'm a Stoic, I can promise you. I'm going to be partying until the partying catches up with me. Then I might become a Stoic. Paul engaged both of these different um, types of philosophy and philosophers of that day, these pagan philosophers, with the gospel of Jesus. When members of the group called Paul a babbler, they were accusing him of stealing other ideas to form his own religion. The word babbler literally is translated seed picker. Like, oh, what is this seed picker saying? He picks a seed from this religion, and he picks a seed from this religion, and he comes together. But there were other people who said, no, no, no. There's something interesting here. We need to hear from him, and we need to hear from him in a formal setting. 
And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Not because they wanted to know the truth. They were just curious. Expand your knowledge. Learn everything you can about all kinds of different areas of life and fields of knowledge, applied knowledge, and and especially when it comes to philosophy about the great meanings of life. Let's talk about those. It wasn't that they were trying to hear somebody say this is the truth and they so that they could accept it and, and, and live that way. They either wanted to just know it or they wanted to refute it. <laughs> Areopagus literally means the hill of Ares or Mars, thus the name that we know, Mars Hill. <clears throat> The Areopagus was located on a small hill. If you've been to Athens, you, you know where it was. And above it is the Acropolis, and, and on which sits the Parthenon. You know, this great, magnificent temple where many gods were in there. There are gods all around Paul in, in, in this place where he's meeting before this council, the lower city, just a, a, a little bit of ways. And, and this council was quite um, elite. There was, was an elite group of people. It, it, they, they regulated the intellectual and religious practices of the city. But Athens was no ordinary city, and this council was not comprised of ordinary men. It would be fair to say that the intellect of this group was unmatched anywhere in the world. Some of the most brilliant people in the world sitting there, and just to stand before this group would have been considered quite an honor for a lot of people. Paul had a purpose when he was there, and his presentation is quite spectacular. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you say, or what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now let's stop right here before we go any further in this, in, in this um, defense of the gospel, this presentation of the gospel. It's important to understand that Paul had been interacting with these people for several weeks, months, who knows how long. And he had been sharing, we are told, already been told, the, the, the gospel of Jesus and the resurrection, or the life of Jesus, been preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So he'd been sharing the gospel with them. They knew all about what he believed about Jesus at this point. Uh, it's also important to recognize that this is a summary. It's a synopsis of what Paul said. Luke didn't record the whole thing, just like all of Paul's sermons involved in Peter's that you read in the book of Acts, surely were longer than, than what was preached. They, many times those sermons probably went 45 minutes to an hour long, and we just have what appears to be a long sermon to us when we're reading through the book of Acts, but really it's just a synopsis. So we don't know all the things that Paul said, but speaking about the resurrection later, as he does, it's very likely that even in this 
council setting, this setting before the council, he preached the life and death of, res- of Jesus because he talks about the resurrection. And Luke would assume that we would understand that as he wrote that. Paul uh, began his presentation by, form- by finding a point of contact. You are very religious. That's great. You have an altar to the unknown God. Good news. I'm here to tell you about this one true God that you worship and you don't know about. This was quite bold. I mean, Paul was telling these enormously intelligent men that they were ignorant. And not only that, you've got no excuse for being ignorant. The God who created this universe has revealed himself to all who have spiritual eyes and ears Eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand. And he's not some statue, no matter how ornate. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Do you think this struck a chord with these extremely intelligent people sitting there? Don't you know that they had to wonder, is this really? This I'm worshiping a God here? He really created the world? He's responsible for all that goes on? And what makes my God any better than any other God? Surely they, they thought that, and I would imagine that Paul had engaged them in the marketplace or even here, it's running through their minds. Paul is saying, God created man in his image. These statues are, are the reverse of that. It's man creating God in our image. We make him manageable. We domesticate him, and he will not be domesticated. You cannot Bring God down to our level. He's not like that. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You think you've... Look, God created one man and from Adam all people come. And you think that you just do anything you want. You've moved here from Athens, from all over the world. No, God is the one who brought you here. Verse 27, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. That's what all these statues are. It's your attempt to get to God. It's, it's that God-shaped vacuum that, that Augustine and Pascal have articulated. Paul saying it first. You, you're feeling your way to God. He's, he's designed all of this so that you will seek Him out. Yet, He is actually not far from each one of us. And then Paul does a pretty amazing thing. He finds truth in the poetry of the pagan Greeks of old, some dating back as far as the 5th or 6th century B.C. And he, and he employs it in his argument. <clears throat> For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed <coughs> his offspring. Ravi Zacharias <clears throat> talks about when you're engaging people of a different religion with the gospel, it's always good whenever possible, 
especially with Muslims, to find points of contact and to say, we, you know, you worship God, the one God, I worship one God. No, you worship a trinity. Well, let me explain that. Let me explain that we understand this to be, and, and the New Testament writers who clearly believe that Jesus was God also believe that this is one God. He manifests himself. He's got three persons, but he's one nature. So, Always find a point of contact whenever you can. And Paul finds it in pagan literature. All truth is God's truth. That doesn't mean we know it's truth because it's stated so in Scripture. There's another place in, 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 in 1 Corinthians 15.33 where Paul quotes a pagan playwright from, from years gone by saying that evil associations corrupt good manners. In other words, be careful who you associate with. It'll mess your mind up and it'll mess the way you live up because we always live on the basis of our beliefs. So our knowledge of the world that goes outside and extends well beyond what we we understand from Scripture is always helpful. Any... all the time students talk to me about a class. Oh, I hate this class. It's the most meaningless class. When am I ever going to use this? And I say, you have no idea when you're going to use this. If all of your life is about preaching the gospel, you have no idea when you're going to use the information that you receive now. So study well. Study hard. Learn everything that you can learn. I need to say that next week when the students are back, I, I, I think. But, but you never know how God is going to uh, lead you to use your knowledge in a gospel presentation. Then in verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Here again, who, who's, who is created in whose image? Don't get it backwards, Paul says. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day <coughs> on which he will judge the world in, the righteous, in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Once again, understand that Paul had said enough that this made sense to them at this point that Jesus had lived, died, and resurrected. And this was an extremely bold statement. He, he began by saying, look, I know you guys are, are considered to be the, the brightest minds in the whole world, but I need to inform you that while you're religious, you're ignorant of the one true God. Now he's ending this presentation by saying, Furthermore, your ignorance is not going to be an excuse. God has revealed enough of himself that he is going to judge you by his standard of righteousness, a standard that none of us can ever achieve in our lives. We can never attain this righteousness on our own. But it has already been fulfilled in Jesus, in his life, his death, his resurrection. And if you will believe that, you will be saved. Therefore, repent and believe in Jesus. How did they respond? They all fell on their faces. No. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again 
about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. In other words, that was enough, enough said for these narrow-minded geniuses. Was it conviction from the Holy Spirit that caused them to shut him down? Okay, Paul, that's enough. You know what it's like to be dismissed, don't you? <clears throat> I know we all have. And, and, and if you've shared the gospel enough, you've had this, this, this happen to you. That's enough. I've heard enough. I don't want to hear anymore. Very likely it was the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But, but you need to understand, these people were very, very, very far from God. Intellect, much like riches, can keep people from God. Doesn't have to, but it often does. A handful of people believe, but there's no evidence of a church being established in Athens. There was no great movement here <clears throat> as there was among those whose hearts God had already prepared. So, should we not waste our time witnessing to intellectuals, to those who are educated? Absolutely, that is not the point that we get from this. In fact, some people try to make that point. They try to make the point that when you read 1 Corinthians, Paul says, when I came to you, I determined to preach to you Jesus and him crucified. And they say that that was because, because he goes to Corinth next, which is not far at all from Athens. But he, <clears throat> the, the, the reason that he said that was, I, I tried this other approach in Athens. It didn't work, so I came to Corinth. That, that's not so at all. <clears throat> There's no... <clears throat> evidence whatsoever. It's quite a stretch to think that God put this here because he's showing us what not to do. This is a perfect example of how to witness to people who don't have any <clears throat> Christian worldview at all or any thought of God in their mind, of the one true God and of Jesus to this particular point. And anything that we do <clears throat> is up to the Lord anyway, whether or not people get saved. It's not our charge to bring people to Christ. It's our charge to share the gospel. He's the one who brings them to himself. <clears throat> so, when we are engaging people from other religions, as well as uh, very intelligent people who grew up in, a, in, in, in what used to be considered a Christian nation, there's a lot to learn <clears throat> from Paul's presentation here in Athens. And we only have time to list um, what they are. First of all, Whenever you're talking with somebody that doesn't know Jesus, find a point of contact or of common belief if you can. Second, acknowledge God as the creator of all things and all people and as the one true God. <clears throat> you know, to us, it just doesn't make sense that you can believe that this world just happened by accident. That, that, that there was not a God, a creator of the universe. We believed many, many years ago that that was the case and that he sent his son Jesus to die for us because of our desperate condition as we talk about here. But to a lot of people, it seems just as ridiculous the other way. In fact, it, to them, it, you know, they would say, you're just utterly out of your mind if you believe this. How can you believe? You've got to find a way 
to engage them and oftentimes asking them questions, letting them come to their own conclusions about the foolishness of their beliefs. It's a good way. And even though Paul's address is an address here, there is indication that there was a great deal of dialogue. Who knows? Maybe it was like the Supreme Court. We don't get this in, in, in Luke's record of it, but maybe it's like the Supreme Court where, you know, lawyers make their case and the, and the judges are peppering them with questions. You know, and there's a back and forth, a, a give and take there. Perhaps that was it. So find this point of contact, but then state the truth that God is the creator of all things and all people, and he is the one true God. Third, articulate man's desperate condition apart from Jesus. Because in our day, we don't think of ourselves that way until some disaster strikes. Four, share the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And then fifth, call for repentance and faith. And you know, I think there are a lot of us who get to that, get all the way through four, but, but, but number five is kind of tough. We don't, <clears throat> it's not comfortable. It's like, okay, let me share what I believe with you, but hey, it's cool, it's cool. You do what you, you believe what you want. It's, but Paul always called for repentance and faith. And that ultimately is what got him in trouble. Sharing the gospel, saying this is the only way, but then is one thing, but to say, but you, Tim Metz, you need to believe this. You, Harold Jernigan, if you don't believe this, you're not right with God. That's difficult. And we don't have to do it just exactly that way, you know, pointing fingers. But to call someone to repentance and faith and to say, are you, are you ready? Are you willing? And, and a lot of times they're going to say, no, 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 I'm not ready. It's our charge to say, I understand that. It's a decision that you have to make. But, oh, I hope you make it. I believe this with all my heart. And I hope you make it. And when you believe, <laughs> when you take that step, you will believe it with all your heart as well. So let's engage the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a privilege. We've got the truth, not in an arrogant way. God has graciously revealed to us the truth. And he's charged us to share it. And it's quite a privilege to do so. Let's pray.